There's a podcast that sure all the rock's heart is gold and they're climbing the stairway to eleven when they get there they know the record stores have all closed but online they can get what they came for Welcome to Stairway to Eleven. My name is George. This is John. And I'm TR. We've got three more albums for you today. And it should probably be interesting. Be interesting today. (laughs) (laughs) Put on the boxing gloves and take us away, John. All right. I'm not wearing boxing gloves because I already know my album is spectacular. Whether or not everybody else feels that way it could be another story because i did not choose an easy album to go over however i think it's easy but i love it so with my choice i went with the godfathers of progressive rock at least i think they are tr would you agree that they're probably considered the first true progressive rock band before i announced the name in your um yes or at least certainly one of the early progenitors of the genre. See, I would think since they probably had the first true album that came out in 1969, it would put them there, but they're more than just progressive rock. They're a lot. So, and I did not choose the album. Most people think I, or would think I would choose. So I went with King Crimson and the album red from 1974. No, I did not go in the court of the Crimson King the first album, like everyone would think you would go with. I went with this album because I think this album's better. And I think there's more to this album personally. If you're not familiar with it, it was King Crimson's seventh album hmm. at this point from a band that started putting out material in 1969. It was released October 1st, 1974. It was recorded in July, August of 1974, but also earlier in June of 1974, because one of these songs on the album is a live track. How to describe this album? Well, the general umbrella falls under is progressive rock, but there's so much more going on. There's jazz rock. It's very dark. It's atmospheric. There's some people who have even labeled this somewhat heavy metal because it is very metal-esque at times. It's certainly influential to metal. I don't know if I would call it metal, yeah, but it, it definitely <clears throat> laid the groundwork for a lot of bands that would follow for many years as a kind of a blueprint for the sound and the atmosphere that they capture on this album. It is the final album of a trilogy for three main musicians being Robert Fripp, who is the longstanding only every album member who's on guitar, John Wetton on vocals and bass. If you're not familiar with that name, you do know the band Asia. That's probably the biggest band he was in that he's known for in terms of popularity, but he's also been in a host of other bands. And then Bill Bruford on drums, who if you're not familiar with Bill Bruford is, Bill Bruford is famously known for 
being one of the original members of Yes and played on their first five albums. He then went and played with King Crimson for a number of years. He's been with Genesis as their touring drummer in 1976, which is an absolutely fabulous live album and video. I know TR has watched it from 1976. And it also features somebody who's been featured on this podcast a lot, Peter Gabriel. So we'll just get that out of the way. <laughs> Peter Gabriel is our new Leviathan from yes. the Metalheads podcast. And it also includes a host of other guest musicians, David Cross, Mel Collins, Ian McDonald, all either were members or guested on albums with King Crimson in the past and Mark Carrig, I believe. And they all play violin, metronome, you know, saxophone, alto sax, there's an oboe, cornet, all that. So it's all covered here. The album is produced by King Crimson. And when I said earlier, it's the final album of three that would feature Robert Fripp, John Wetton, and Bill Bruford. It was kind of their second version of the band at this point. It was a short-lived version. They only put out three albums in the span of basically two years. And then they decided to take a break for a while, all the way to 1981 for the next album to be released. But Bill Bruford does continue with King Crimson at that point. John Wynn does not. So some just brief insights on the album, mainly my insights, but I think that some of them are pretty consistent with other prog fans. This album is considered one of the greatest progressive rock albums of all time. It's hard not to see this album in every top 20 list from any reputable site, you know, or maybe I don't even know what we call these people online anymore. They're, I guess, rock critics, but they have their own YouTube channels or there's print media. I'm referring to people like, you know, Pete Pardo has his big channel on YouTube, See Tranquility. There's other progressive rock sites. There's the Gagley Archives radio. They talk about this album a lot. So there's a whole slew of people that consider this one of the great albums. Whether you consider it a top 10 or a top 20 or top five, it's all at that point preference. But this is definitely one of those albums because it brings so much to the table, even for only having five songs. Sadly, the band broke up two weeks prior to this album being released. So they never really had a chance to properly tour this album to get it out there. They hardly played these songs live. As a matter of fact, they only really played one song live a number of times before the album came out. And some of them weren't played until well into the 2000s, which is a shame because, again, I consider this to be their finest work of all their stuff. Now, I know there'd be a lot of King Crimson fans that would disagree with me, and that's fine. That's all part of it, so... In terms of their music, this is definitely heavier. It's darker. There's almost kind of a menacing feel throughout it for some of the direction they go. It's not for everyone. If you don't have patience, keep driving by <laughs> because you need to be able to take this in and let it absorb. This is not one-time listen and you have an idea what you're listening to. If you don't get it, you just don't get it. It's as simple as that. But I think if you give it time, there's things that you can pick out from this album that really stand out and it starts to kind of what's the right word marinate uh, <laughs> marinate's one of them i'm thinking of brewing you know as the absorb like, absorb it spreads out it has to breathe this album's precise it's methodical it could be repetitive at times but there's a reason for that Bill, or Robert Fripp has always demanded precision in playing. And you have to listen for the subtle changes and the subtle key changes and time changes. And then you just get walloped with something you don't see coming, which I think is great. 
other than that, I, like I said, I consider this to be one of the best progressive rock albums ever. They are certainly one of the great power trios of all time. It's hard to argue the musicianship in this band with other bands. There's very few I can think of that would stand out. Rush, obviously, we talk about them all the time. I know people think Cream is an outstanding band. I like Cream. I like a lot of their stuff. I don't know if they were as great of musicians as some of these other power trios, but they're definitely great. There's not many. I would put them up there. So I won't go on because I'll talk too much about this. <laughs> I'll let you guys jump in now before we start. So I've never listened to much King Crimson. So this was a new experience for me listening to an album front to back. I have listened to a little bit of the first album, as you mentioned, which I found to be very different. I have to admit, after my first listen through, I texted TR and I asked if he'd listened to it <laughs> because I had no idea what to make of this album. It was a shock to the system. But I was determined to find something about this that I could consider positive, so I gave it a few more listens, and I'm happy to say that while it's still a hard sell, I can at least appreciate certain aspects of the songs, and I will go into those details as we move on. Yep, so King Crimson is another one of those bands that I never got into. And by all rights, I probably should have, given my prog leanings, but I always perceived Crimson as less melodic and a little more out there than the prog bands that I was into. The funny thing is I've seen them live in a number of their various lineups as King Crimson, Project Six, Crimson Project, Robert Fripp and the League of Crafty Guitarists, and Robert Fripp Solo. And they are always interesting, if a little weird. So I'm glad John picked this so that I can expand my palette and really check them out. So thanks, John. I agree. Yeah, if you're looking for a flowery English prog, this ain't for you. See, no Genesis. <laughs> no, and it's not yes. There's no happy frou-frou lyrics that mean absolutely nothing. They just kind of are banded together to sound kind of like a hippie dream. And I like those bands. This is not that at all. This is dark. At least this album is. I'm surprised so, about that Asia connection. That uh, I need to listen to him sing again now. Because oh, yeah. Asia, very different. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, for all the musicians in the band, it was really different. So, all right, well, let's get started. So the album opens up with the song Red, the title track. It's a relentless instrumental that makes its presence known immediately with the start. As I mentioned before, this is a heavier and darker King Crimson. This wasn't like anything from before. Although they were leading up to it with this power trio with the two previous albums but this was still darker than the previous two. This is a take no prisoners song. It just goes right in and starts up and you are not really given much of a break until the middle of the song. Every change, whether it's a key or time change is deliberate and methodical. You have to go through a number of kind of repeats to get to the subtleties. And as they build the song and you really, if you hear all these comments about Robert Fripp and how he plays and you're like, okay, whatever. I don't know what that means. Well, this is a great song to hear that every section has just slight changes, even though they're repeating a lot of the background rhythms, it just starts to build and build. It changes slightly from the prior sections that they were in. And as I mentioned, precision is key to the playing. Methodical is key to their playing. 
And the musicianship is amazing from all three players. I'll be honest, I didn't realize how good of a bass player John Wetton was until I really spent more time with his King Crimson years. Because when you think of Asia, you don't think of him just laying down some heavy bass lines. You think of them doing some kind of poppy, semi, like, 80s. It's like some Boris the Spider kind of heavy bass on here. You know what I'm he, talking about? He's got more feedback, yes. Not so much on this song, but... He, no, no, he but on some of the stuff. Yeah, the song maintains its heaviness throughout. And I mentioned that midsection. The midsection kind of just drops into like a solo Robert Fripp guitar work with these kind of almost doomy sounds in there with cellos that come in and just kind of give this ominous feel. And it picks right back up to finish even heavier than where it started. Like I said, there's stuttering bass work from John Wetton. Again, I was, this is the album I'm most impressed by, even though I like the other two albums he's on. This one, I feel like he does even more. There's a lot of kind of crashing cymbal work from Bill Bruford throughout the song. I'm a huge Bill Bruford fan. I always have been for all his projects, specifically, yes. I loved what he did when he was in Genesis because I thought as decent to pretty good of a drummer Phil Collins was, I thought Bill Bruford was like light years better than him, but for different reasons than other people would think. He just has a certain kind of groove and a certain kind of sense of timing that I really like a lot. I like him in Saxon. Bill Burford's in Saxon. <laughs> Bit by for, you know, for, for, yeah. Yeah, close. Oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. His long lost cousin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing I'll say about this song that really stands out is that a lot of prog metal bands point to King Crimson as an influence. And this is a song I, you can hear that because so many prog metal bands, at least those early prog metal bands, all had to do instrumental work. And you can hear that this style of instrumental. This isn't your you know, kind of fluffy instrumental, like lots of keyboards and soaring and, you know, thousand notes a minute, you know, from guitar players. This is a lot different. This is almost reminiscent of YYZ from Rushmore. It's in that darker vein where it's more technical without being technical, if that makes sense. So to me, it's a tour to force to start the album. I think this is an amazing instrumental and I could listen to this all day long. Although I would probably get tired of it because I'd like to hear other songs, but <laughs> I like the opening riff for this. It's unusual, but after a few listens, it's cool. This leads into a different riff that is also cool. Um, for the whole of this song, it is, it's all uphill anticipation waiting for a payoff that never comes. It's like the song is traveling along, but then it never gets there. The horizon always stays the same distance away. But that said, the riffs are definitely cool. And I like the song. There's some cool bass on there too. And, and that's, it took me some, you know, a few listens to get used to it, understand where it was going or not going and to like it for what it is and not what it isn't. So. Yeah. So this is heavier than I was expecting and a little grittier too. It actually has a memorable riff and was easier to follow than I was expecting. I don't know. I think I was expecting this. I mean, there's plenty on the album that gets to that kind of thing, but th this was pretty straightforward in a lot of ways. And, and so I was kind of surprised at how, you know, how easy it was to follow for me, at least initially. And of course, I'm always good with an instrumental. So there's the, the, the lyrics and the vocals will never let this song down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but the album as a whole is not as kitchen sink as I would have thought. 
you know, it's not ridiculously complex and a million things. I mean, there are parts where there's horns and guitars and things and everything going on, but it's not that crazy. Yeah. I was expecting like it to be just so obtuse that you couldn't really know what the heck was going on. And it actually, I mean, there are parts in there, but nowhere near like what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Agreed. Which was a pleasant surprise. So it's interesting that no one would take my word on it when I told them all this. <laughs> hey. Because, yeah, you know, I'm just making a bunch of stuff up. But I'll Like say, you always do. I told you so. Oh, no, this is not for me. But anyway, maybe next time people will listen to me when I say things. Maybe. Probably not. Probably no, not. you won't. <laughs> like said, and then I get laughed at. And then they're like, but we were wrong. So let's move on to the second song, <laughs> Fallen Angel. This is the first song on the album that has vocals on it. This is a song that was kind of debuted early on in 1972 when the band was supporting pre, it was pre-tour supporting or pre-release support for the album Lark's Tongues and Aspect that came out in 19, or 1973 early. They were starting to kind of play earlier versions of this song back then. So this goes back before the first of the three albums came out with this trio. It's got an interesting start of kind of bass feedback, fuzzy sound kind of stuff going on. I don't know if I want to call it noise because I think he's actually playing something. He's not just, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think he's just like fiddling around with his knobs and any pedals, but it kind of builds into this loud noise. Then it just drops into this real sweet, proggy, folky, melodic verse that has this kind of delicate John Wetton voice singing. And it's a complete turnaround in the span of like i guess 10 seconds 15 seconds and now we sound like we're back to original traditional king crimson from their first album almost it's an interesting twist after what you just heard in the first song in this opening kind of bass feedback noise intro and like i said john wetton's vocals are subdued they're classy throughout the song he doesn't really stretch his voice too much on this he kind of just lets it flow with the way the song goes he really doesn't overextend himself at all, which is kind of nice considering the song does kind of build to some controlled chaos a little bit, not much, but a little bit as the song goes on. It gets a little heavier and darker. There's a kind of a jazzy brass instrumental section with Winwoods. You know, again, I mentioned corn and oboes. These are all things that, you know, you think, this isn't going to be cool, but it does kind of weave itself together to give kind of a, it's not like a pop song the way he sings, but it has its very standard almost in parts before it gets kind of proggy in other parts. It kind of weaves in and out of this folky prog section jazz interludes then to this kind of larger than life guitar moments. Again, execution is precise. And when you hear that, you're thinking, oh, this has got to be like some real super technical band. And, and like, We've all said it's not that type of technical. It's different. It's all about timing and it's all about placement that makes this so technical. It's about not missing your part, which is something that's always been pretty interesting about King Crimson. Okay. If we want to talk about the lyrics, because we do have somebody who's a member of the Lyrics Police Bureau (laughs) here with us. It's my understanding this song's about a man being asked to join the Hells Angels by his brother and then his brother seeing him tragically stabbed on the streets in New York City. Oops. Yeah. Damn, that didn't work out. I think it's a cool song. It's definitely an about face from the 
opening intro red, but there are moments that kind of harken back to that style of red. But they do a really nice job, I think, in this song of creating just kind of a nice proggy rock song that you can follow, but then they kind of pull it away from you a little bit and pull it you at arm's length and go down those kind of jazzy proggy interlude sections where they get a little more, what's the right word? I don't want to say there. out there. Yeah, but <laughs> out there makes it sound like it's the band Can or something, you know, <laughs> which it's not. Yeah, you no. Know? They take you off into a different direction and then they pull you back in and give you the nice, sweet stuff, you know. So I said, cool synth intro. Vocals, there they are. I like his voice. In the heat of the moment, I, I wrote a note <laughs> that I oh, think boy. this is probably my favorite song on the album because it's the most normal, quote unquote normal, in terms of the structure. However, since I wrote that, I think I've changed my mind. So stay tuned. <laughs> well, so much for your soul survivor. <laughs> yeah. I can see how this album would provide inspiration for metal bands. It's definitely avant prog and has interesting ideas. The horns on this are cool. Would you call this jazzy oh yeah yeah i think it is yeah yeah a jazzy rock not yeah. a jazzy jazz yeah definitely or it's a collision of jazz and rock if that makes sense almost like two things going on at once tr you've seen them with the dual bands right the two trios have you seen that version yes. of them yeah where, where they you have got two sets of drums and i mean two bases type players two guitars playing yeah. Not Which, two different things, but sounding like two you've got to be, re- you've really got to be good to to pull yeah. that off. I mean, you, it's hard to have two drum, like two, you know, rhythm sections yeah. going on at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's so yeah, George. When you say it is it jazz, I think it is. I actually think it is jazz, but then it's also rock, but it's not jazz rock. If that makes sense, it's almost like two different things going on, playing the same song. Yeah. So laid over All top right. of each other. Kind of like the new Isan album, but different. Don't head down that avenue. So I said, this is actually accessible. And the introductory lyrics kind of, you you kind of mentioned, John, like this folky, proggy thing. And it made me think of early Genesis, actually. Obviously, it didn't stay in that kind of vein for very long. But like there was a the snippet there that kind of made me feel like it was like early, some of the early Genesis stuff. And Wetton has a good voice, although I think his singing got even better in his later years. He seems to be like he was certainly a capable singer and, you know, he's got a good voice. But but his technique, I can hear in his technique that he wasn't he was relying. I don't know if he took lessons later or what, but I feel like his technique improved with his singing after this because he here he sings well. But I can hear that, you know, in later albums and later on in his career that he developed an even better singing technique. I like Bruford's drumming on this, and Fripp is really tasteful. The horns start to push it for me, but they do add a nice texture overall. Yeah, it's an interesting point about his singing. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, okay, what would it sound like if he was singing from the first two Asia albums? And it wouldn't work. I think it's interesting. I don't know if, and I don't know, I'm being honest, and I'm not disputing what you're saying. I think you're probably right. He is a much better singer with Asia. But it almost feels like his voice has to be like this to kind of go down those 
again, it's not, there's no chaos on this album, but it's like a controlled chaos, if that makes sense. Yes. Because no, it's not, there, there's some, there's a little chaos on this album. When, yeah, yeah, but when I mean chaos, it's, it's laid out chaos. Like, this is what mm. we're going to do. It's not just like, all right, let's all smoke weed and just start playing <laughs> and see where it goes. Well, you know, they don't do that. Everything wait is, for it. <laughs> actually, no, there, that's, that's, improv there on that song uh, okay. yes i'll give you that for that particular song uh, okay. yes yeah the rest of the album i think is very structured and they, yes this we're going to do this is what's going to happen tiara's correct we're getting to that but i have positive thoughts about that are we good to move on awesome so the next song is called one more red nightmare it's the third song hey there's vocals on this song too great which is awesome because I do think he is a good singer. I think he's much better than people give him credit for. And I think he's a much better bass player. I didn't realize how good he was till I listened to his early material over the years. I absolutely love this song. And it starts out with this big, huge opening riff. It's very metal-esque almost. It almost has that rush of Farewell to King's Hemisphere bigness to it. Although this would be prior to that. So maybe Alex Lifeson's gleaming something from King Crimson. There's large, big crashes from Bill Bruford on his playing. He has this interesting, great groove that he does at the beginning, but then he's also hitting his cymbals in such a way his crashes are coming on odd notes and everything or odd beats. And it just sounds abrasive almost. And then it just falls into this kind of really cool groovy rock song with hand claps. I don't know if you noticed that. There's these like little bit of claps in there and it's got just this kind of different groove, but you know, like TR and George have mentioned, it happens for a little bit and then they pull you away and go a different direction again. They go a slightly different about face. One thing I noticed about his vocals before we move on is that they're a lot more aggressive on this song, I thought, than the previous song. And so maybe, TR, that lends a little more credence to what you're saying about him being a better singer with Asia. I think his aggressiveness, and he's not raspy at all, but he kind of gets used the word grittier or gritty earlier. He's a little grittier on this song, which I think kind of helps for the aggressiveness of this song. Song moves on to this instrumental middle section that kind of features Fripp's unique style of playing. If you're not familiar with his style of playing, it's hard to describe. If you're a fan of David Bowie's work, you know, like the album Scary Monsters or I believe Heroes, I have to check. I'm ashamed to say I, I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, but definitely on Scary Monsters, Robert Fripp plays guitar in it, and the guitar is jagged sounding and abrasive. And almost sounds like scraping metal sometimes. And he does a little bit of that here. He gets this unique playing. You've got Ian McDonald's alto sax playing. They kind of get to that again, that kind of jazz and rock playing together at the same time. The song kind of returns to the vocal verse, and it gets back to that kind of groovy kind of rock vibe. But then it just goes right back to the big ominous sound, and it just kind of starts going back and forth to the end of the song. And it kind of does that, and it kind of gives you a little bit, like you guys were saying, oh, there's a little bit of this, that's nice. And then it pulls you away and gives you that big, dark stuff. And it, it just has this ebb and flow throughout it. I absolutely love this song. Lyrically, if we want to talk about lyrics again, suppose this song describes the nightmare in the form of a crashing airplane with the dreamer waking up just before the plane's about to crash, only to wake up and realize 
they're on a Greyhound bus. Uh, I read this online somewhere and I was like, all righty. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So even the dream is weird, you know? So, but this is a song I've never seen them. I passed up one time on seeing them when I had tickets. I'm really disappointed because they played this that night at the show. And I was like, Ugh. so in fact, they played three songs from the album. Wow. So I'm very disappointed I didn't go because I would have gotten to see this. But anyway, you guys go now. So I said another really cool opening riff, very metal sounding, which you stole my homework. Very ominous. The bass is a monster. And then Sgt. Pepper era Beatles show up to do some vocals. <laughs> like a little yes. McCartney, you know? It's just very, like the phrasing and the tempo of it, it just sounds like something, an outtake from that era. I said definitely my second favorite track, or maybe even my first. It's my first now. <laughs> Upon further reflection. I don't know. They're both pretty cool. I think there's so many different things going on in these songs that it can be confusing and seem chaotic. And now when I say that, I don't mean all at once, like the kitchen sink we mentioned. I mean, it cuts from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. But I've noticed the more I listen to it, the more I pick up on little things that are cool. And this is just like a collection of a bunch of cool things thrown together. And let's not worry so much about structure and moving the song along. Let's just make some cool stuff. <laughs> so. But in a strange way, it does there. It's almost planned out like a storyboard. Like they have it up on the board and like, we'll do this. Yes. We're going to this. We're going to go back to this. Wait, we'll go back to that then. And it kind of, like I said, it has that old cycle of ebbing and flowing up and down the business cycle. If you guys are in the business world, like some of us, it's non-traditional you know, so. song structures. And once you understand that and can get your head around it, then it's easier to understand, accept it for what it is. Yeah. So this definitely influenced Stephen Wilson because I can hear stuff on it in absentia that seems to draw from this <laughs> main lyric sections are not exactly melodic, but it's supposed to be a nightmare after all. I like the section from two minutes to three minutes before the saxophone comes in sounded like a cross between rush and yes. Yes. Rush. Rush. Yes. Is that all you got? That's all I got. Okay. So we'll move on to the song that TR was alluding to. The song is Providence. It's the fourth track on the album. It was not part of the recording sessions for the album because it's a free improvis improvisation Recorded on June 30th, 1974 at the Palace Theater in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay, I get it if you don't like this song. <laughs> Apparently, there's a much longer version of this from that night, and they edited it down for about... <laughs> oh, this was the compromise. This was the... <laughs> well, if you know anything about them in TR, you've seen them live. You'll know mm. that they, they do these improv bits during shows. Oh, yeah. They will start out, somebody will start out playing... And they'll all start jumping in at some point. And sometimes it just sounds like noise, which the first half of the song does. I will give you that. And almost, you could almost say, are they tuning their instruments at some point? But if you listen carefully. <laughs> I don't know, that almost might be a direct quote from George. <laughs> yeah. But if you listen carefully, though, you start to hear things starting to form. Now, I get it. This is Freeform King Crimson. We hope you enjoy their new direction. I get that. <laughs> the song opens, like I said, Freeform Improv. There's a lot of bass feedback, Mellotron. There's frenetic violin playing. And there's this kind of random percussion from Bill Bruford. That's the first half of the song. It kind of reminds you 
of Yes's meandering moments and tales from a topographic ocean meets the waiting room from Genesis off the lamb lies down on Broadway. It's got like a vibe of those song, those moments. But then eventually Bruford starts to kind of lay down this cool, groovy drum beat. And then John Wetton starts to match with his bass playing and it starts building into something at the end. He's still getting those kind of jagged, rugged soundscapes from Robert Fripp on guitar. But the final two minutes, you finally hear the band playing together. It's not your thing. I get it. Had they not included it on the album, put another song like Fallen Angel or One More Red Nightmare, that would be fine by me too. But what I think this song proves to you is how good they really are as musicians, that they can come from absolutely nothing and start at that to kind of finally get to a song at some point. And it's interesting because... TR and I, George, I'm not sure how much because we haven't talked about it, but TR and I are, I would say, and I think I speak for you on that, I say TR, are huge fans of the early years of Dream Theater. Those first three releases, that period to me is the stuff that I still get giddy about listening to because it was so different. But they used to improv all the time on stage during those yeah. early tours. And they would sound like, what the hell are they doing up there? And all of a sudden the song would start and they'd be like, whoa they are actually playing a song they've never played before and nobody knows what the other person's going to do. And I think you get that, that you'd realize how good these musicians are in the band. I mean, you have to be good to be able to, you have to have an ear to hear this, but again, if you don't like it, it's, this is avant Prague at its finest moments without <laughs> question. And it's not everyone's cup of tea. So have at it, destroy it all you want. I get it. I do like the last three minutes of the song. The first five, I'm kind of like, all right, and then I realized there might be another like eight minutes of that from the show. It's like, oh, trees. <laughs> I don't need to hear all that. <laughs> the orchestra is tuning up. Please That's take your way. seats. The show will begin shortly. Hold on. Lights flickering on and off a couple of times. <laughs> to let you know we're starting. They dabbed a bit of extra avant-garde on this one. And then past the halfway point, the bass kicks in, the guitars wail, and we start to have a song, albeit more jam less structure i kept waiting for him to bust out the black sabbath and ib riff on the bass <laughs> you know it just kind of sounds like he's headed that way you know yeah <laughs> or that maybe nib is like an excerpt from this <laughs> but yeah that's no, a good point i never thought of his bass being that not fuzzy because geezer's bass is fuzzy on that album but being that kind of almost black holeish the sound and it really is when you think about it that's a good point yeah so this is an improvisation and it and it sounds like it you could get away with stuff like this in the late 60s and early 70s and while it's impressive that this came from a live performance i could have done without this track or at least the first five minutes of it I feel like there were some good ideas that they could have built into a proper song, but a lot of this is a train wreck to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was live, so that, you know. Yeah. That... Oh, I'm fine with that. There's some people who think this album is a five out of five, even with that song on it, because they don't even listen to this song. <laughs> they just skip <laughs> over it every time, you know, so I well, think it's, a, it's, so, it's a test of wills. Yeah, and to your point, John, I, and you know this because, you know, we saw Fripp do his Frippertronics stuff uh, when he opened for Porcupine Tree on that one tour. And, you know, I have no doubt that those were completely improvised, you know, sessions that he did. 
I mean, he may have had like a blueprint in his mind as to where things were going to go. But, you know, this guy has spent a lifetime improvising and and he's very capable of doing that and, you know, having it go in some interesting directions. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, at an earlier time in his career, you know, I'm sure that as a musician, especially a group of talented musicians who are pretty much at the top of their form, there's something exciting about about doing something like this because there's, you know, there's obviously chemistry between the members of the band and and it's, you know, do we have what it takes to kind of make something happen here? And, you know, whether you feel like something happened or not, like something still happened and it, and it is, it does take a great deal of skill and talent to be able to do, you know, this. So it doesn't surprise me that this ended up on the album just because I think, like you said, probably felt like this was a good example of the band at this time and what they could do, especially with like some very kind of unconventional instruments coming together in this song like that agreed all right so the final song on the album and to me and let me first say i am not a king crimson aficionado i love this band i've got most of i think i have everything but two albums so i have almost everything i love almost everything they've done (laughs) not everything Mm -hmm. but i would never consider myself a hardcore fan because this is one of those bands that just has legions of hardcore fans that know everything about them. Every live show, and there's hundreds of releases that they've put out. Hmm. And this band has, this is what I wish what more bands would do. They put out just so many live releases. They'll put out every show from every from a tour. Every night will be recorded, and like, you can buy them. Like Pearl Jam know, and Metallica? So, yeah. You know, they're one of the early bands that started this and other bands have followed. And I wouldn't say they're the godfathers of this, but they're definitely one of those early bands that did this. You know, that's kind of like Deadheads. There's people who just know everything about every show they've ever done, you know. And so I would never consider myself one of those people. So when I make my statements about this band, this is based on my opinion. I'm sure there are plenty of fans that would disagree with me. But to me, this is the crown jewel of not only the album, but of their whole 50 plus year existence. I know people say, oh, it's got to be something off the first album. To me, it's this song. And that is the song Starless, which, while not a long song for epic-esque status, is, you know, it's 20 minutes, it's an epic, you know. However, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is only 13 and a half minutes, and I consider that a freaking epic song. Absolutely. I I consider this an epic song at 12 minutes and 18 seconds. It was originally written by John Wetton with the intent on being the title track for the previous album, Starless and the Bible Black. But Fripp and Bruford were like, eh, we ain't feeling it. <laughs> so they they shelved it. But with more song but, development. But they still called the album Starless and the Bible Black, which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the intention. And they kept that title because it is kind of a cool, interesting, you don't forget that. You're like, wow, right. what does this mean? Well, yeah. like Zeppelin didn't put Houses of the Holy on Houses of the Holy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I it, so I think it was the intention of John Wen and the other guys were not having it. But with more song development, they eventually recorded the song for the album Red with the shortened title of just Starless. So I kind of like that they did that because they took away the confusion. Why is this on the other album? But then again, they 
created confusion. So maybe that was the whole point, right? To have it go both ways. To get to the song, it opens this kind of subtle playing, this kind of reserved vocals. There is some melodic guitar playing. It's not frenetic soloing. It's just nice, mellow, melodic playing. There's Mellotron, Mellotron that's reminiscent of their early days off the first album in the Court of the Crimson King. It has that feel. There's plenty of sexy sax on there from Mel Collins and Ian McDonald. So it's got all that. But this song is methodical and deliberate. And it's going to be that way the whole way through. And for about the first four and a half minutes, it kind of just prods along and does this. It's done with such precision and it's well done, but it's deliberate. You have to get through this. And then it takes this dark twist into a whole new realm of, of Prague. I mean, it goes to a place you don't expect. It's ominous. There's low-end bass. Fripp has this hypnotic guitar work where it's just him playing. And then percussion starts coming in. And you're kind of taken down this dark chasm. Almost, a, It's like their version of prog doom when prog doom didn't even exist. Or doom didn't even really exist at that <laughs> point, for that matter. There's subtle key changes. Again, the percussion and the drum work from Bill Bruford somehow makes the song even more menacing because he's so great at playing percussive on such a small drum set. He's able to use so much of the set and the kit. He uses pieces. He's got all kinds of things going on. And it continues to build this crescendo. And it's just this ominous feeling. This anxiety is building up. It can't possibly get bigger. And it just continues. And if four minutes later, it takes this nether crazy turn into this funk-driven jazz-fueled jam session. Our Metalheads podcast co-hosts and brother, Matt, The Situation, would approve this sack-soaked musical snuggie that blankets this part of the song in a <laughs> euphoric oral warmth. Sexy. I mean, it really, it just creates this wild jam session there. And then the song kind of closes during the final two minutes of this kind of semi-avant prog jamming that kind of revisits the opening section of the song. And by the time you're done, you're like, whoa, what was that? Now, <laughs> if you get it, you go back and say, I got to listen to this again. What did I miss? Because there's so much going on in this, even though it is deliberate, it is hypnotic, it is methodical. Lyrically, this song was written by someone, I believe, called Richard Palmer James. And he described the lyrics as being about a breakup between two close friends. All this information about lyrics, I get. One, to avoid being docked by the lyrics police. But two, I also do it so that I get it from this genius.com site. And so I have no idea if this stuff is accurate or not. But I want to give the source. I'm not just lifting this shit. And, Everything and on the it. internet is true. Yes, exactly. Yeah. However, I do go and I kind of source back and I find other sites that kind of have the same lyrical explanations. To me, the musicianship's outstanding on the song. The song is absolutely massive. I mentioned the whole precision thing. I've kind of beat that over a little bit, but me saying it all the time is I have to because that's what's really going on. This is a clinical performance. And to me, it's one of the true great epics of progressive rock, not just from the 70s, but all progressive rock. I can see where metal bands cleaned onto this atmosphere that's created on this song, this kind of ominous feel. I could see where friends of ours, like I believe Galen, George. Oh, yeah. He's a huge fan of this album, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Galen's I recall you guys talking about it. Metalheads podcast. He's in a number of different black metal bands. 
he's also a Fates Morning fan, so he gets that too. But he even talked about how this album was just important. There's been other people we've had on that have mentioned this album. And I could see where they get it from this song and from the opening track, Red. So I'll stop talking. You guys go. This is One Long Mother. I love the guitar lead at the beginning. I can't say for sure what he's doing there, but I know I used to get a sound kind of like that by using my neck pickup and then turning the tone knob all the way down. Gives you that smooth, warm tone that I really like. It's kind of buttery. So that's definitely cool. The vocals kick in and for some reason make me think of the Moody Blues. I don't know. But then it's sexy time, (laughs) as you mentioned, and that's for Matt. I've mentioned several times the lack of structure or even cohesion to these songs, but what they lack in structure, they make up for in interesting parts. And this song at over 12 minutes goes many interesting avenues. But you can't be looking for some verse, chorus, verse, poppy song if you're listening to this album. You really have to work for it and want to find the goodness in it. And as I said, every time I listen to this, I hear something else and something more. So I like it. Yeah, another fairly accessible track, certainly for the first four and a half minutes. At that point, it feels like you are traveling through space as the song slowly and gradually builds in volume, intensity, and complexity for the next four and a half minutes. When a saxophone comes in and the song takes on a Pink Floyd money vibe, for a bit and then mellows shortly before a wall of sound freak out and then coming back around to the themes used in the first part of the song. I liked this. Not bad, John. I like to hear that. (laughs) I would think you guys would agree that if you get this, you probably get, can get a lot of what the band does because this is pretty much everything in 12 minutes that they're known for, I think. Just with the darker vibe, which is unlike the previous albums. And for that matter, some of the albums that followed, the 80s stuff is not dark at all. It's got a whole different slew of things going on, but you had to be there in the 80s to get it. So Hmm. anyway, all right, so let's wrap this up. Like I said earlier, Red's a true iconic progressive rock album. It features this outstanding trio of Robert Fripp, John Wetton, and Bill Bruford. To me, it's one of the great rock trios of all time. I think even though it's very short-lived, I don't know how they felt about it together because it sounds like it didn't go so well because they broke up fairly quickly. But I will say that this album grows in stature for me. The more I listen to it, the higher it goes up on my list. Yes, it's another one of those albums on my Desert Island discs. And it's amazing how it seems like almost all my albums in that list are showing up on albums that we talk about here in the podcast. I haven't picked all of them. They've been picked by other members here. However, it, it, this is another one that just keeps moving up. And this is slowly creeping to that top 10 level for me. But I get it if people don't like this album or if they don't understand it or if it's too much or if it just goes all over. That's okay. It's This album's not meant to be accessible, even though it is accessible if you break through the barrier. You know, it's kind of like when you first got into extreme metal and you had to get past harsh vocals. Or if you're like people like our good friend Will on the Metalheads podcast, you had to break through the barrier and get to clean vocals. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Will. But anyway, I'll just finish with that. I think this is one of the great prog rock albums of all time. Yeah. And that's all I'll say. This was easier than yes. And not, and I don't mean drama. Yes. Drama. Yes. Was very easy. 
but like some of the other, yes, this is easier than that. But ultimately I feel like I'm starting to come around to the charms of this album. Probably not something I would reach for very often, but when I have a need for a very specific set of skills, this is what I would send Liam Neeson <laughs> after. Yes. Yes. I like it. Having never spent much time with this band, it was nice to dig in and really pay attention to it. What would you recommend for further listening? If you want to stick to this style no. of the band? No. I just want to know what I should listen to. Well, that's why. I Regardless I of style. So obviously I would always tell people, Oh, well, listen to In the Court of the Crimson King. That's the first album. It's got two of their biggest, three of their biggest songs on it. But I would also say, go to, hold on, let me pull my list here real quick. I would say Lark's Tongue and Aspect, which is two albums previous to this. And then if you want to get crazy, wow, imagine that. We're going to get crazy, but we're going to go to the 80s. You can listen to the album Discipline which has got the whole 80s synthy vibe thing going on. Hmm. But it features two new band members, Adrian Ballou uh. and Tony Levin. Ah. The god Tony Levin on bass, you know? Who oh. we know. How do we know? Where do we know Tony Levin from, guys? That would be Peter Gabriel. Thank Peter you very Gabriel. much. <laughs> I just saw him. Well, was, just. And Tony Levin was playing, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He's like 77, 78. The dude is in amazing shape. Did he have his long fingers on bass? I couldn't see that far, but yeah. he did. He certainly got the reception when he was introduced. Oh yeah, he's the long fingers. Tr, I know you've seen them. He's yeah. got like they're almost like well, they're like little Steve drumsticks. I little drumsticks on his yeah. fingers. It's called the long fingers because hold them up, you'd be way up in the air. So, jeez, awesome. I am the yeah, exact so, opposite of that. I have extremely short fingers. Well, he applies them to his fingers. Yes, they're like long fingernails that he applies. <laughs> well, they're actually like little drumsticks yeah. that he like tapes to his fingers, and then he uses them like to like as a percussive oh, thing to hit the strings with. So he's basically, you know, hammering the strings with these sticks on it that are tied that are like taped to his fingers. So there's like a Freddy Krueger thing going on. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. <laughs> Does he have little mallets on them? I can't remember. I don't recall. I think I they're just remember. kind of like sticks. I mean, they're, they are, but I, I didn't know if he had the little soft mallets on the bottom to soften the, because uh, I, so. I have to look, because if you're hitting yeah. drumsticks on, you know, those big, heavy, thick bass strings, that could be quite yeah. the sound, but he's so good. It doesn't matter. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, let me wrap it up. Overall, I like this album and it certainly offered insight into Stephen Wilson's catalog, both with Porcupine Tree and Solo. I just, yeah, I was surprised at how many things that I heard on this album that that Wilson kind of used in, in a variety of circumstances later on. So I think this definitely was a huge influence to him throughout his career, more so like later on. But like, you know, because the early stuff, the early Porcupine Tree stuff doesn't really have a whole lot of this kind of thing. But, no. you know, later on when you get to In Absentia and some of the other stuff around that period. I think you, even more his solo work, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Well, exactly. I mean, what Raven that refused to yeah. sing or whatever was kind of like his King Crimson album pretty much, I think. I mean, he, I think he explicitly even said it, you know, like, yeah, this is what I'm shooting for on this. <laughs> so, yep. Well, Good choice. I'm glad you guys liked it. So if you are a... Metalheads, and you listen to the Metalheads podcast, and you want to hear one of those albums, I'll just give you a quick rundown of bands that have mentioned them as an influence. Opeth, 
Macedon, Between the Barrier and Me, Leprous, Haken, The Ocean, Voivod, Enslaved. That's a pretty wide range of bands. So, and most of them are good. You know which yeah, one I'm I, talking about. Yeah. Look. Haken be faking. I'll say it again. I've told Tierra this. We've had this discussion a million times. <laughs> Musically, they don't bother me at all. I think they're great musicians. I just can't get into to the singer. However, I like the singer's solo work, though. It just doesn't make any, it just don't make no damn sense. <laughs> anyway. All right. I'm glad you got made it and survived. Yeah. Probably more so than the next one. ATR. All right. So we're going to move from something that has very loose structure and cohesion to something that is very regimented and not as avant-garde. <laughs> this is my pick. The Sisters of Mercy floodland the sisters of mercy are an english rock band formed in leeds in 1980 they released three albums 1985's first and last and always 1990's vision thing and in the middle of those two is our album today 1987's floodland each of the sisters albums sound fairly different from each other to me though they are all tied together by the haunting vocals of andrew eldritch Bloodlands is my personal favorite, so that's why I went with it today. This was probably outside TR's wheelhouse, so we'll see how that goes. I'm sorry for taking you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> you took his whoopee away from him. Uh, <laughs> I want my musical Snuggie of the other thing to put on now. <laughs> the Sisters of Mercy only released three albums and a number of singles, but the band has remained active all these years only playing live shows. Last year, I finally, after 30-odd years, got to see them live, and it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, Andrew's vocals were mixed very low. I don't know if it was like a you know self-conscious thing or what, but they were even lower than the bass player who sang backup. So it was the bass player you heard most of the time, and he can't sing. Despite the sound, it was a cool show just to see the performance and these three classic albums will always make regular appearances on my playlists. I'll go next, TR. All right. <laughs> Save the uh, best for last. <laughs> yeah. I'll go next. So I am familiar with the Sisters of Mercy. I do have this album, and I've had it for a while. But I did not come into this band as early as George did. I came into this band because of my friend Lisa. Told me I should check them out. We were hanging out once, and that was probably the early 2000s, maybe mid-2000s I got into then. So, and I like this album. I have commentary, no doubt, but uh, I was familiar with this, and I did know it. So I'm we'll just going to start giving there. you guys albums I know you're going to hate. <laughs> I didn't say I hated this album. <laughs> no, I, I know, liked I know. It. Yeah, but I have some, there's things about this album that, feel, when you hear it, you'll know why. Right. So. So I had heard of this band, but really knew nothing about them. And goth is not my thing, as we've previously said. It's too dirgy, and the vocals are usually subpar, and it's just generally depressing. But I was determined to give this a fair shake, so I listened with open ears. All right. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave yeah. it at that and move on to the first track, Dominion Madarasha. While I'm not usually a fan of drum machines in rock music... Dr. Avalanche, a.k.a. their drum machine, brings a heavy, solid presence to the sisters' songs that just makes sense with the songs they're playing. 
So in this case, it's a cool opening, followed by some cool guitar. Andrew's vocals come in, and right now, right away, you know what you're getting from this album. Yeah, it gets heavier, but this is essentially the sisters in summary. Vocals were kind of unique for the time, but they became the blueprint for goth rock along with The Cure, and this is the voice that launched a thousand imitators. You can go on Bandcamp now and type in goth rock, and I guarantee you many of the bands that come up are going to sound like this. Some are better, some are worse, but there's four songs on this album that rock my world, and this is the first one. It manages to be heavy without being all that heavy. While it's not terribly complex, it gives the impression of a lot going on when you're in the chorus section. All right. So, again, we'll save the best for last on this album, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Make it easier for you, TR. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I kind of like this song, too. It's got a cool, dark, gothic vibe to start the song. I agree with you there, George. I'm immediately reminded of another singer who was doing this style before this band. Oh. Yes. This is a darker David Bowie at times. (laughs) Okay. No, I accept that. Yeah. He has that cadence. Now, I agree. His voice is what launched a lot of bands that fall, but he has a similar sound to Bowie, but he's much darker. I agree. I thought the chorus was memorable. I tried to look, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Is there sax on this song, or is that a synth overlay that comes through? Because there's a kind of a Mm. cool background sound you know, right there in the chorus that kind of reminded me of a sax, but I couldn't tell if it was a synth patch or if it was actually real. I looked online and I couldn't find anything on it, but it's kind of a nice touch to the song, which I think it's the only time they do that on the album. We'll cut to Matt for confirmation on whether or not it's saxophone. (laughs) And Matt says, unsure. So uh, not sexy (laughs) enough to tell. (laughs) So I, I will disagree on one thing about this album right from the bat. I don't like the drum machine. I can't stand drum programming. I understand where it comes from and I understand why it's used, but I'm not a fan of not having acoustic drums to go along with the programming. Yes. When they played live, there was no drummer. Yeah. I figured Mm -hmm. as much. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Uh, Dr. Avalanche has always been in the band and always will be. (laughs) Yes, I know. And I'm just not a fan of that because I'm a former drummer and And I have no, go ahead. I get that, you know, but this mute, this style of music does not require drum acrobatics. It just needs a beat just like, you know, various like synth wave and stuff, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. It's not a drummer, but you know, it works in this situation. And that's the way I feel about Dr. Avalanche. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I was saying I would like to have the combination of two if you're going to have, because this is very prominent drum programming. It's loud and upfront yes. the whole album. There's uh, even sections I mean, where it's just the drum machine playing. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I've seen bands, I mean, I've seen Psychedelic Furs live, Simple Minds. They're all, they're not maybe necessarily goth, but they're from that synth world itself. And they have live drummers. So. This is just my nitpick. It doesn't mean it's not right. No, it's not a problem. It'd be like Rush without a drummer. Really? Well, that's so. what we have now. So, Whoa. Who said Too that? All right. No. And on that note, let's go to TR. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so this was a little too synthy for me. And the vocals were just so low. 
Oh yeah. Um, and and now I will say it had a catchy chorus, and I like the riff, but the vocals detract from this for me. It's just you should see like, her it live. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So it's just a bunch of kind of low. It's kind of in the background. And Emoting. Yeah. I'll get into that a little more later, but yeah, it just. I don't know. It just didn't hit me, but but there are more songs on the album. Okay. Well, track two is called Flood One. This track is a bit more ominous. I love the keys on it, combined with Andrew's deep, menacing vocals, and of course, the Doc's drum foundation. This song is subtle. It doesn't go really crazy. It just kind of lurks and digs its way into your brain, and then you find yourself humming bits of it later. Yeah, I agree. I actually like this song. And this is the vibe of goth that I like more. I'm not as much into the dance beat rhythm as much. I get it. I get where that comes from in goth. But I dig this more. I like the slower tempo of the song. It has a darker feel, like you said. Only I get it. If you're going to have drum programming, that's fine. But it's a little upfront on this for the snare. The tom work the program is fine but i thought the snare was a little upfront for this tempo this pace that they went with this snare um, or lars on on justice <laughs> yeah all right you're bringing up you're bringing up like nightmares for me right now with that <laughs> snare all right let's just stop while we're here. okay so that means this one's better right everything <laughs> is better <laughs> everything is better i kind of dig the sense on this and i if you're a child of the 80s, it has that kind of, and I it's I don't want to say horror film, because horror film today to people is different what horror film meant to us in the 80s. Yeah. But it's the ensemble cast, you know, and there's some ominous thing happening in their town. And literally the whole film is at night. But like it's a week in time on the movie, but it always happens at night. So nothing happens during the day, apparently, in these movies. They sleep. But it, yeah, they sleep during the day, yeah. But it has that kind of feel, the sense on this. And it's I kind of felt, I feel reminiscent when I hear that. It's nostalgic to me. Sure. There's not much variance in this song. It I wouldn't say it gets monotonous on this because it's a shorter song, but it doesn't deviate too much. But I do like this vibe a little more than the previous song. All right. So I said more low vocals. The song has an air of mystery to it. Kind of dirgy. I don't get hooked by this. That's it. That's all I can put together. <laughs> that's all I got this. to say that's about a, that. That's all I got to say about that's that. That's why I'm going second on every one of these. <laughs> no worries, my brother. No worries. I'm going to give more. I'm going to give the extra content. <laughs> I still love you. Maybe not at the end, but at the moment, I still love you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> all right. Track three, Lucretia, My Reflection. So this is my jam. This is my favorite on the album. I've been actually working on recording a cover of this since probably the beginning of the pandemic, and I never quite finish. I go back and I re-record guitar and I re-record bass parts, and I think I'm stalling to conquer, stalling from trying to conquer the vocals. But anyway, this song starts with drum and bass, and what a cool, simple bass line. I think it's a cool, simple bass line, and it just kicks ass. Kind of like A Forest by The Cure. Andrew begins sighing words over top and then the guitars and keys kick in and things get real, John. It's a slow build up to the chorus. The track is just freaking haunting. 
And it's just so cool. I can't stand it. I love this song. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on this. So in the first three songs on this album, we've already gotten three different kind of directions of the goth scene. Mm -hmm. You think about it. And this is what I think of when I think of goth rock. I agree with you, George. The baseline's simple, but it's got a real good groove. And when I hear it, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what kind of music we're talking about here. And I love the chorus. I think it's great. Again, another a common thing that I saw on the album, minus the drum program, is the songs don't veer off much. They don't go into different directions. They kind of stick to the same formula. And that's okay. You know, I mean, if you're trying to recover from a King Crimson album, this is a nice way to have some structure. (laughs) Yes. But this is by far the most goth rock song on the album. There's no dance vibe on this. There's no kind of broodiness of the second song. This is just a straight ahead goth rock song. And it's cool. I love the synths on this. They kind of fill the back end nice. There's great atmosphere. It's kind of an ethereal feel. I dig this song too. This is one of my favorites off the album. Excellent. So more low vocals with next to no energy. I did did like the cool bass riff and the song kind of picks up, but these kind these vocals do nothing for me. Like I just don't, I had a hard time getting anything out of these vocals and I'm spent. Yeah. (laughs) When did Will join the podcast? Yeah. (laughs) Now we got the vocal police. All right. Yeah. Still, I'm just kidding, Still TR. That's okay because I, I put the lyric police on getting a holiday today. All right. So you track- didn't even bother. You didn't even bother to read the lyrics, did you? <laughs> I did actually. I always, I okay. always do look at the lyrics. Yeah. And you know, you know, the thing about it is like you wouldn't really know because the lyric, the vocals are done in such a way that it's very hard to hear what he's saying. See, really? I can hear everything he's saying. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel like. What are you listening to it on? It's just, it's like, oh, he's I, mum- I feel like he's mumbling mm-hmm. and it's low and. I, you I, need I to have these headphones. Like, <laughs> I don't, I just don't feel like there's any passion in it. Like it just sounds just like devoid of any energy. What? I don't, I'll be honest. I don't get that at all. Honestly, that's, that's just how I, how I feel I about it. it. Yeah. So yeah, you obviously are not a David Bowie fan then. Because you would- no, I never have been. Yeah, and you would hate his vocals, which means I'm going to pick his most obscure album for that (laughs) just to do it on purpose. But if you're not, and I'm not saying he's imitating David Bowie, but he has similar inflections from 80s Bowie, without question. Mm -hmm. And Bowie's considered one of the great rock singers of all time. So, yeah. All right. Well, track four is called 1959 Piano Ballad. Yup, you got it. The piano, along with Andrew's mournful vocals, give the impression of actually traveling back in time, actually traveling back in time to 1959. It has an old-timey feel. With the vocals lacking dynamics, they make up for in raw emotion, unless you're TR and then you're not getting that. But this is the third of four songs that are among my faves. It's kind of... A nice break after the continuous drum beats of the first three tracks. I think it's well placed in the track list that way to give you a break before flipping the disc over. I would agree with you on the point of getting away from the drum program. You're going to need it and you're going to need it because it picks right back up soon. Yeah, there's to me, it's a great album 
change of pace and palate cleanser if you're looking for that. There's, it just kind of, I'm probably more into boat with TR, I'm, I'm guessing. Maybe not. Maybe he does like this song, but I think I'm probably closer with him on this. I find it interesting that while it's vocals and piano, there's not actually a piano used at all. It's a sequencer. So they don't actually have one piano key being touched the whole time, which is <laughs> interesting. Well, but that was the times and that was the technology. And, and, and it's still the case. Yeah. So that, I find that interesting. It is a nice palate cleanser. It's nice to slow the beats down and to remove the kind of the drum program because it is very upfront on their sound. So I just kind of, I didn't go anywhere with it that much for me, but I do agree that it's in a good spot on the album to kind of give you a little bit of a breather. Yeah, I agree. I felt like this was a really nice change up in terms of, you know, the tonality of it. I still feel like the vocals are still dull or overly dramatic. Like there's this, you know, and I'll get to that in a minute, but on another song here, but this would be a totally different song if he sang in a higher register. Like, I feel like he saps all the energy out of these songs by singing so low that it just feels like there's no there's just no energy in it. Like, I just feel if he's saying like in a higher register somehow, it, there'd be a little more energy to it, but I'm sure that would completely defeat the purpose of the style. But I just, right. I don't know. Like I, maybe it's just, I don't like the style, but like, I just feel like, I don't know all these songs. It's just like this lack of energy, even though he's kind of sounding dramatic, it just, it sounds... I'm guessing you're not a Peter Murphy fan then, TR. No, never was. I was going to say, I'm guessing you're not a typo negative fan. Are you no. not a typo well, negative I fan? Can't say, I, well, I have to say that I really haven't listened to them. So I, right. I can't tell you whether I am or okay. not. But like I can, you know, that all that kind of style, I've just never really appreciated it right. much. Well, we all have our... Things that we like. That's true. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like idiosyncrasies or something. There. <laughs> no, no. Oh, yeah. uh, it's dumb to judge people on what they like. I know. We're just yeah. having fun. I mean, come on. Yeah. Look, I just made them listen to King Crimson. All right. Jeez. <laughs> come on. I'll bear those scars for the rest of my life. <laughs> but you'll Still keep recovering. opening them because I feel so good to let them seal back up. Yeah. All right. Track five, This Corrosion. And here we have number four of four of my favorite tracks on this album. Probably the most played song off the album based on what I hear on the radio. Starting off with the choir and then into a steady heavy beat again with bass and synths. This one switches up the feel of the song compared to the others. It almost has a little funk snarl to it. I don't know what else to call it. And Andrew gets fairly animated compared to some of the other songs. The backing vocals are icing on the cake. And was that a guitar solo? That's weird. If listening on the vinyl, this is the first track on side two. So it kind of makes sense to change things up a bit. And again with the choir. I love choirs in any and all types of music. Unlike Will. And then No, it's kids. <laughs> it's kids, not choirs. No, I don't like that either. I don't think. But uh, And then we've got Sauron in there saying... Give me the ring. <laughs> so uh, Barb heard this track on the radio and liked it. And we had to go track by track through the first th two albums so she could identify which one it was. While goth is a bit of a lonely little subgenre, 
This song proves it can win over people that listen to more mainstream music as well. Except DR. Yeah, this is, I agree with you, George. I actually like the 40-piece choir that they had for this. I like it at the intro. I think it kind of is cool because it's different than what was going on the rest of the album up to this point. It definitely has an 80s synth pop vibe to it. Again, the program drums. You can see why this would be a popular song in a dance club. It's just got that beat. So this reminds me of the opening track, Dominion Mother Russia. Yeah, It has that feel. It's more on that side of goth. It's not brooding. It's not that kind of driving bass version that we talked about on, on previous songs. Again, it doesn't very much, and that's where I get a little fatigued on the song. I think it's a little too long, but I get why it is, because it has that dance club vibe to it. Again, I hear a lot of Bowie in this and his vocals on this, and I could almost, you know, I can almost see if I wasn't paying attention, if I heard this on Sirius XM on the first wave. I'm probably, saying, probably. Did I miss a Bowie release in the 80s? Because I could see him singing this song at that time when he was doing this kind of vocal style. I will say that Andrew Eldridge seems like an angry person based on the lyrics from this song. <laughs> okay, and I beer in my nose, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> at least it's not milk coming out of your nose. Yeah. It, I know the lyrics, I guess, are based on previous band members. He directs it at them who left the Sisters of Mercy to form the mission. And I know the opening track has some lyrics on there that he seems just like he might be a little angry. A little bit and of a curmudgeon. Okay. A little bit, yeah. It's, and I don't, and we've said this before, unless they're Steel Panther lyrics, which I just find to be just, I don't even know what to say. I'm not even going to say anything. I just They annoy me. I don't generally get super mad at lyrics. I don't subscribe to the whole political thing in lyrics. I don't buy this. Well, that's what rock and roll is. That's a bunch of crap because most of rock and roll in the seventies was about white snakes and having sex and doing drugs. So, but at the same time, I don't get, it doesn't bother me. That's what you want to sing about. Knock yourself out as long as the chorus sounds good. So I don't, it doesn't really bother me, but it just seems like on this song, he's like, He's twisting the knife a little bit on this one. But I can see why this is a popular song amongst fans because it has that beat that really uplifts you to want you to get into this. So I think it's a decent song. Just a little long for me in the end. All right. So I was kind of amazed when the chorus comes in. I was like, what is this? This is kind of cool. What? And so you get this really cool chorus thing. And then all of a sudden it's just like... You know, it's real interesting. And then the plug gets pulled and we're back to 80 cents and, you know, feel like I'm, you know, watching some movie with Oingo Boingo in it. And what do you have against Danny Elfman? <laughs> Nothing. It's just this, that, that synthy, you know, poppy. I don't know. I just don't care for that kind of tone. So I think I remember hearing this on the radio in the 80s. This definitely has a catchy chorus. The Verse lyrics seem to be taking up space until they can get back to the chorus. It seems like <laughs> it's like, oh, we've got this awesome chorus. Let's just kind of fill the other, you know, verse to, to so we can get back to the chorus because that's really the, you know, that's the part of the song everybody wants to hear. That was kind of my impressions of it. All right. Moving on to track six, Flood Two. I don't know that this is exactly a reprise of Flood One. 
but it does begin with the same minimal sound and then gets a little heavier. Again, the keys are key. Ha ha. There's some acoustic guitars that are a nice touch, if a little hard to pick out, but they are in there. This one sort of reminds me of the song Ribbons from their next album, which is one of my all-time favorite sister songs. Um, yeah, I like this one too. It it obviously has a similar take as the first Flood one, but the like you said, the tempo is a little more upbeat and the pro- drum program is a little up, more up front. So that adds that little bit to it. I do like how the synths kind of create an eerie feel throughout the song. Mm-hmm. Again, I think they do that well on the album. I think they capture that time period really well. That seemed very popular, whether it be in music or in film or television shows that had that used that type of synth. Again, when I mentioned to you with Lucretia, that song, I prefer my goth rock like this when I want to listen to it. So I like this. So this is one of the songs that I definitely like on the album. Cool. So here come more low vocals. <laughs> I felt like the fake drums kind of held this song back. Definitely echo themes and lyrics from Flood One. Sorry, that's all. I have. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've got to say about that. Yeah. Let's move on to track seven then. Driven like the snow. I've never actually been a big fan of this one. I mean, it's okay. It's cool. I'll listen to it but it doesn't really have anything about it that stands out like the rest of the songs. Filler? Perhaps. So for me, I thought the bass line was, was nice on here, and I do like the mix with the kind of ethereal synths in the background. But I will say, at this point, the drum machine is starting to exhaust itself with me. Yeah. I'm ready to move on. I want to get to, you know, I'm ready to listen to, the dark star from the dead i'm ready to go that direction now at this point i mean i get starting to check out here i get it (laughs) but you've ever seen them play dark star you know it's that huge drum solo thing they do in the middle of it and you're just like wow this is making led zeppelin look like amateurs i'm glad to say i only know two songs by the grateful dead uh truckin and casey uh, jones and uh, touch of gray that's all i know you know casey jones no i don't yeah, you do. <laughs> I'm sure I don't. I bet oh, you do. I'm sure you do. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I only but, know that I know, too. <laughs> yeah, you do. Trust me. Uh, TR, he knows that song. He everybody does know knows, that Everybody song, knows. Yeah. Anyone who's a rock fan knows that song. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, I have to look yeah. that up. High on that train. Or is it? Riding that train. Driving, high riding on that train. High on cocaine. I like cocaine. Oh boy. Metalocalypse. Hello. <laughs> I agree, George. It's not that the song's bad. It just doesn't do much. It almost feels like it's saying, hey, we are reaching the end of the album here. Yeah. In essence, <laughs> you kind of feel that way a little bit, which is funny because I like the end song better than this song, to be honest. Interesting. But. I just got fatigued with the program, the drum program at this point. Sure. Just because it's so upfront. But I did like the bass line and I do like the kind of ethereal sense that go on throughout the song. So, all right. Hit me, TR. Well, I just don't enjoy this guy's vocal delivery. You don't uh, it's, say. It's kind of haughty and slightly dramatic and somewhat self important. And I just, I don't know. It just. George, I'm going to say TR's never listened to one 
goth rock album ever. <laughs> well, that's because I just he has because he's listened style. to the Cure for previous yeah, episodes. Well, that's right, and but he had that, but like, didn't like that one either. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, well, I, and I'll tell you, like I, you know, I've heard this stuff, and I just never liked it because it's just like this depressing, low kind of. I don't know, dirgy stuff that I just... What's wrong with I, I dirges? Just, well, it. I want something that's got a little more energy and feels a little more... I mean, I like some dark music, but like, just, I don't know. It doesn't connect with me on any level. I just don't... I know, we're I, just having fun with ETR. Yeah, I know, but I, like, I'm I, actually... I'm trying to try to figure this out because, you know, when I've listened to this in the past... Or for, you know, I don't, I can't say that many of my friends like music like this. Cause we just, I don't know, this is not the kind of things that I listen to. And I remember like hearing kind of stuff like this on the radio and thinking like, I just, it didn't, it just kind of washed over me and just didn't really feel compelled to like investigate it further. Or I just, I don't know. I just, it didn't connect with me at all, like on an emotional level or like a, a, any kind of level. And did, so did you it, not watch 120 minutes at all on MTV? I, I never really liked that alternative kind of stuff. Wow. Okay. Now, I'm actually really happy that you have never clearly felt the need to listen to music like this. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, like, it's, it, well, that's the thing. I mean, like, because it didn't connect with me, this style of music, I, I can honestly say I, I don't have any of it in my collection. I, am you know only mildly familiar with it in, in enough to know like okay yeah here's these guys i knew that they were around in the 80s i knew i've heard of this band like you, you can't help but know about certain bands and different styles and you know you need i read guitar world for you know how many years and so you mm -hmm. know they're going to be doing interviews with these guys and transcribing the music and all that kind of stuff so you know Obviously, I'm familiar with the style and the bands to a degree just to know, like, you know, what kind of genre they fit into. But it just wasn't something that connected with me at all. So I never really kind of looked for it or got into any of these bands or, you know, listened to these albums. And so I appreciate the fact that we're doing this so that, I, you know, I, I can kind of have a better sense of what this album is about, you know, because I think I, I, you know, when you hear something, maybe it's just one song, right? You can kind of jump to a conclusion right? sure. and you can say, well, Oh, I, I know what this band is about. And maybe you don't like, maybe you didn't really give it enough of a chance or you didn't listen to it enough to really make a real conclusion like that. Right. So, so so I'm glad that we're taking the time to like, and I listened to each of the albums that we are talking about here at least three times or more. In fact, I think I listened at least four or five times for these, you know, for this. And, and so like, I really tried. <laughs> That's um, all you can but, do. But it's just not something that connects with me. And so I do feel as though like, okay, in, in a lot of ways, this kind of validated some things for me. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I feel like, you know, I can make a more informed decision about this now because I've actually listened to the whole album. I can confirm. Now. I do not like this. Exactly. I do not like this here or there. I do not like it anywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, George. It's all right. It's all right. Still love you. 
All right, let's move on to the last song on the album, Neverland, A Fragment. Not the strongest closing track I've ever heard. <laughs> Honestly, I don't listen to this one as much as the others because I usually run out of steam by the previous track. I would definitely call this filler. It's too bad because the first six songs are classic goth majesty. If they could have just come up with two more good tracks to end on, that would have been awesome. But regardless, not all great albums are great front to back. This is still one of my favorite albums of all time. Yeah, I think the title says everything you need to know about this song when it's in parentheses, a fragment. It is. Which it is a fragment, I believe, of a longer version of the song, which I think is, as I was telling you earlier, George, yeah. 12 minutes. And it feels that way. It feels like it's a piece of a song. And I kind of wish it was a little longer because I think we would have gotten more from it because there are some interesting things that they do in this short little two minutes and 46 seconds. It's just, they, they don't do it. I do kind of like, again, this very, again, I don't want to call it 80s horror film sound, but it has this just very memorable synthy sound in the background that kind of makes me nostalgic a little bit to this period. It's very, very period centric. The mm. sound itself doesn't really transcend the eighties. Meaning when you hear it, you know when it's coming from. And I dig that about the end. That's why I actually like this more than Driven Like the Snow, the previous song. However, I don't like that it kind of just... Trickles uh, out. It just, yeah, boom, we're done. Yeah. It's kind of like the end of uh, Stop Swing from Porcupine Tree off the Stupid Dream Album. It just... And it just kind of stops, you know, at the very end after it fades out. And I feel like that this song kind of just does that. It just kind of... It just ends, and I kind of like the Sopranos. Yeah, it's like, does he die? <laughs> does he live? What? Do they get their meal? I just feel like another minute and a half might have given this more context. Sure, but yeah, which is funny. I actually like this more than the previous song, but I agree that at this point in the album, you're kind of maybe can we go back to the previous stuff if that's what you like? Yeah. So, all right. I think it's funny because I actually like this song. <laughs> this was the only song that I felt was too short. I, now, the fake drums were really over the top for me on They're this called song, drum so. machines. They're not fake. They're still drums. Oh. Still drums. Okay. All right. They're, drum, they're electronic drums. The electronic drums were over the top for me. I like the rest of the music. Yeah, I think it's funny. <laughs> it is. It's <laughs> ironic. This is the one thing that I kind of liked, and you guys are like, eh, man. Now, John, no, I, you said I didn't, you, you kind of liked actually, it. Yeah, I kind of like it. I actually felt like, yeah. And I kind of feel like I, yeah, I felt like, oh, man, you know, like this is about the only thing that I kind of got into, and it was like like half a song, you know, like it's, oh, where's the rest, you know? This is like not bad. So. Well, <laughs> I'll take a little like over nothing, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, you survived. I, yeah. You survived. You know, I made it. I don't really have a closing statement for this one because I kind of closed the song with it, talking about how it's one of my favorite albums of all time, which it is. This is something I come back to very regularly. So, yeah. Let, is it a DID for you? Desert yep. Island Disc? Absolutely. Nice. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Because it's different than so much else that I listen to. So it's, you know, it's got its lane and that's a lane that I need to have. 
So it's no doubt an influential album on other bands. There's no question about that. It's ridiculous uh, how many people sound like this. Yes. So I think most of the album, there's a few spots on it that I'm a little iffy on. And like I said, you guys, I'll harp on the drum. I say programming because I don't think he's actually using stick to electronic. No, drum. no, I think no, it's no. A, yeah. So, but that right. would be fine too. If he did that, then I'd he's actually playing, but. Yeah, like I've got an electronic drum kit sitting right in front of me. Nothing wrong with that. It's quieter. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our last album, TR. All right. So my selection this time was the Colts album, Electric, released April 6, 1987. Electric was the third album by British band The Cult. Their previous album, Love, had gained some popularity from the track She Sells Sanctuary. Down by the the seashore. (laughs) <laughs> she sells she shows by she shows in January. But Colt was considered a goth rock or alternative rock band, and Love had guitar tones that were jangly and shimmery. The band began recording songs in the UK at the Manor Studios with Love producer Steve Brown, but ultimately they were dissatisfied with the results and enlisted the services of producer Rick Rubin. They had wanted him to remix Love Removal Machine, the first single but he would only agree to work with them if they re-recorded it. They went to New York and ended up re-recording the entire album. The difference was substantial. Ruben was able to turn them into a hard rock band and managed to record a ballsy, aggressive-sounding album in Electric. This transformed the band, and Electric propelled the band to new heights of success. This is one of my favorite albums, musically, tonally, maybe even lyrically. Okay, the the lyrics aren't profound, but they work well with the type of album this is. I was all in when this came out. And when I went to London for 11 weeks in 1989, I bought all kinds of singles that were only released in the UK and Europe at the time. You got to remember back then, a lot of imports and stuff really didn't get over here too easily. So it was a treasure trove when I went over there and found all this stuff. I first got into the cult with this album. And the cover track it contains, but I'll talk more about that when we get to the song. Electric is the first album by the band that completely sheds their previous goth rock slant. It's not really all that goth previously. I mean, it's not like Sisters of Mercy or The Cure. (laughs) But I did wonder whether the cult and the sisters were too close to be on the same episode after we chose these. But anyway, I love this album and it was nice to revisit it again. Yeah, I'm a fan too. And I find it interesting that you recognize their goth rock sound in their previous releases. <laughs> and do you like the previous album? So Love? I did like Love. Okay. Because, you know, while it may be considered goth, it's the songs are not as dirgy as that, I would yeah. say. No, right. definitely well, not. Yeah, it, there's more of a tempo and there's no drum machine. So, yeah. I actually first got into them with She Sells Sanctuary. Down by from the album. So, <laughs> but we're all from we're all from the same period. Uh, yeah, forgetting this band, I like the these three albums in a row of Love Electric and Sonic Temple. Sonic Temple, yeah. I was God because George and I got we said uh, what's the one we said George ceremony we, ceremony yeah because they're all they all run together quickly. So I do like this album. I may have critiques of this album, but it doesn't mean I don't like it. I do like it. So, yeah. Okay. 
Well, with that, we'll get underway. And the first song on the album is called Wildflower. It's got a super cool riff, excellent tone, punchy and crunchy, ballsy rock song with great vocals. I almost couldn't believe this was the same band that put out Love. The solo rocks, and this is a great start to the album. Very cool riff to open the album. It's like an ACDC or Rolling Stones riff. Vocals immediately mind me of a Jim Morrison that can sing better, which, as you may or may not know, Ian did sing with the Doors at some point later in time. I've always been a big fan of this one, and I was rocking out to it in the car the other day. Like, it was on the radio as opposed to me listening to it for this. I'm not going to add anything new that these, well, I might add something new here, but (laughs) I agree. It's an excellent song to kick things off. There's three things that this song demonstrate right away that are thematic throughout the whole album. The riffs, like every song starts with a riff. I get, yes, I get the Jim Morrison, but I get a little Glenn Danzig in his vocals too. He has, <laughs> he does that a little yeah, bit. And I, I, that. I had to read some reviews and I found some people that agreed. I was like, I'm getting a little Danzig here. Doesn't sound like Jim Morrison. Doesn't necessarily sound like Danzig, but he has some of those inflections like those guys, which. He is the bridge between the two. Yes. He he's the Jim Morrison of Danzig and Danzig is the Jim Morrison of the doors, whatever, you know, however you want to say it, but. There's that, and this is obviously a Rick Rubenstein album because it's very ACDC sounding in the riffs. Totally. Every song, literally. I can hear Brian Johnson singing some of these songs. I could hear them doing yeah. it, and that's wow, I like ACDC too. Maybe not a super fan, but I like them up to a point, and there's a lot. This is a very simple album. You're not getting King Crimson on this album. <laughs> no. Okay. This is the complete yeah. opposite of King Crimson. It's right. simple. They stick to their formula. They never venture out of their lane and they've got some killer tunes. So it's a great about face album to talk about with what we've already talked about. Yeah. All right. So the next song is called Peace Dog. And it's got another cool riff. The lyrics don't make much sense, but it does feel like a B-52 bomber is dropping some serious rock here. (laughs) The solo cooks while you get Peace Dog gang vocals. Peace Dog, Wildflower. Is this hippie music? (laughs) Peace, Peace is a dirty word. She used to be a painted bird. Very catchy tune, though. I found the Peace Dog chant kind of amusing and perhaps a bit out of character for the song, but I also sang along, so what are you going to know? Cool, cool solo at the end, underneath all of that. So, Yeah, I'm going to echo similar things. Again, riff to start the song, memorable riff that you're going to notice. Again, similar song structure as the previous song. Difference is slightly slower tempo, which I think gives it a little more groove. I like Ian uh, Asbury's vocals a little more on this song. Again, hints of Danzig for me, but now he's more distinctive on his style. I think you get more when it slows down a little bit. And I'll echo the same thing. During the Peace Dog gang vocal, there's a very cool guitar solo. And it just, I'm not a huge gang vocal fan. I like some. I don't like most, but I like some. This one doesn't necessarily bother me because the solos is good. One thing I did notice on this album, his solos tend to be louder 
than the rest of the instruments on the album. Mm. But it's okay because the way it's mixed, you can still hear the rest of the instruments. Sometimes when a certain instrument is higher in the mix than others, you lose, like you'll lose the drums in the background or the bass gets kind of drowned out by the drum pedal or bass pedal sometimes. You can still hear, hear everybody playing on this, but he's definitely up front with his solos. So yeah, it's cool. Yep. All right, so the next tune is called Lil Devil. One of the singles from the album, another rocking tune with another sizzling solo. It's compact. It's the shortest song on the album, but it packs a punch. So when the vocals start on this one, he's like, living in a shack in a one-horse town. And right there, I want to insert a queen Boom, diddy, diddy. Boom, diddy, do. Living in a high in one whole town. Boom, diddy, diddy. Boom, diddy, do. I see a YouTube mashup by George. Oh, boy. It just sounds like it belongs there. But, uh, yeah, this is another one that gets a fair amount of airplay. I think I like Wildflower better than this one, but it's cool, too. And uh, more cool leads. Yeah. um, You know, it's interesting. All of our comments are going to be like this um, direct, straight. We don't very off the path, beaten path too much. We stick to the formula. Again, you're going to hear this for every song, the riff, you know, and I think that's right. true. There's, Billy Duffy, uh, but, man. Yeah, yeah. But I'll say on this song, there's better driving bottom end on the bass that creates that cool groove to this song. I think that's a little different than the first two songs. You can really, this one, I could really hear Brian Johnson singing from ACDC. I could see him prancing around like, you know, Come how he does this thing. Devil. All right. You know, that's, that just smoker's voice all over. You know, you could hear that from him, but it's got a great chorus you can sing to. This song was big when it came out. It was on the radio yeah. all the time, you know, back when people listened to the radio. I still listen to it, but a little different now. But yeah, it's three bangers in a row to start the album. Yeah, exactly. Let's go so for four. Song, yeah, I think we can, because <laughs> the next song is called Aphrodisiac Jacket. And it's got absurd lyrics, but it doesn't matter. This rocks. And I remember thinking that this album doesn't let up when I was listening to it for the first time. Of all the songs on this album, this one starts off the coolest. (laughs) And the riffs and chords are catchy AF. (laughs) I never would have guessed it if you'd asked me a couple of weeks ago. But I think this is one of my favorite tunes on the album. And like the chords under the vocals and the chorus combine to just, it's just heavy, man. Deviate from these guys on this song. No, no, no. (laughs) This one didn't do it for me as much. It's a decent song. Again, exactly. It's a little samey at this point, though. That's my reason for it. To me, this was a complete different change for it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's great. The riffs, I get it. But we're always starting with the riff. And so after three, what I consider bangers, three songs I love, this one's just kind of like, okay, I've heard this. I'm not saying it's not good. It's just, it's the fourth song for me so far out of the four that we've listened to. I thought the chorus was a little weak in this song. I thought the other songs had more defined choruses in them. That's what I liked about it, that it was a little more subtle. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah, it, it relied more me. on the guitar, I thought, but. Yeah, but then what's funny is I have a note here saying cool guitar solo that works because it's there, you hear it, it's good, but it's not excessive. It doesn't go past it's where it should be. It's the right length. And I thought that this, I mean, that's one thing about all the solos on this album. 
they're all good. They all sound great. They're not excessive, meaning they don't noodle off somewhere when mm-hmm. he does them. Yeah. You know, he keeps them in check while still giving you some good stuff. So, all right. mm-hmm. yeah, that's all. Yeah. So the next tune is called Electric Ocean. It's got a driving bass and beat. Another great riff. And it's so well mixed. Asbury's vocals are high energy and Duffy and Duffy's solo is frenetic. Another short, compact song, but rocking. Angus Young still in the house, my people. <laughs> yes. Billy Duffy is the unsung hero of this album. Yeah, Ian can sing. But this album is nothing without Billy. I really dig the spoken backup vocals of like the place to be line, the place to be. You know, it's just, it's like subtle. It's not like in your face. It's just kind of back there. And it was cool. Yeah, I thought it was really weird how this song opened with riffs. You know, not that they haven't done that during the first four songs. (laughs) (laughs) I dig the groove on this song, and I kind of like the stop-and-go song structure. It kind of allows the bass and drums to breathe a little more on it and get a little more of that. And if Meaning, he's not constantly playing. He pauses a lot on certain parts of the song, and I kind of like that. It gives the drums a little more oomph even though they're there already i just like how it gives a little more so the bottom end's a little more prevalent in the song i like how he uses his floor toms on this song instead of the hi-hat to give this song a little bit of a different drive and a little bit of a different beat which is cool so another song sticks to the formula doesn't overstay its welcome you know you know what you're getting and you're not it's not going to meander which is cool you know so you you bring up a good point john about you know kind of some of the start and stop that, that, that comes from some of the songs on this album, because they later issued the songs that they recorded prior to recording this, you know, so when they went to the Manor studios and they recorded this album prior to meeting up with Rick Rubin, each of the songs, most of these songs were, you know, they had it like they had already recorded them, but in a different, you know, a different style is like the songs have a different feel to them altogether. And if you listen to this electric ocean tune from the manor sessions, it's like a continuous wash of guitar so that you don't have this kind of start stop, you know, it's not open air. It's not, a, yeah, it's it's not no, a, yeah. You don't get that space. Yeah. Cause it's just constant. And you could say like, you know, that was a holdover from their love days because mm-hmm. if you listen to love, there's like the guitars are always kind of ha- happening, right? Like you don't get that kind of that kind of like pull back to just silence or quiet or space. It's just like there's like guitars, there's shimmery guitars everywhere. Mm-hmm. And on this, there's nothing shimmery about it. It's like punchy, tight and crunchy and right. It's tight. And read this thing online that says engineer Tony Platt recalled that Ruben used ACDC as a benchmark for the album sound. Huh. Rick, Rick Rubin was recording in the recording the cult in Studio A, and we, Platt and the studio engineers, stood in the airlock just outside the studio. A snatch of Highway to Hell would get played, and then a snatch from Back in Black, and then a snatch of Led Zeppelin. And we thought, what the hell's going on here? 
The studio assistant said, well, he's getting the guitar sounds from Back in Black, the drum sound from Highway to Hell, and the voice sound from Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Literally, he was mixing, as he was mixing, he was getting a guitar sound on the Colt and then comparing it directly with the guitar sound that he wanted to get from Back in Black. The same with all the other instruments. Huh. So that's an interesting little glimpse into i think he was highly successful in that because everything we've said is boy this you know this i could hear ac Ducey doing this and you know it's he definitely captured that sound and by you know taking this band that sounded nothing like that on their album before this or any of their albums before this <laughs> i mean it's a radical approach to making them sound like a totally different band and and it worked yeah, I actually, ACDC's got a lot of stop and go in their songs too. Just think, I, I'd have to go back and listen to those those demos from before yeah. to see how much I don't like the layered guitars because to me, this is a polished garage band sound, you know, with the big, thick guitar. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't sound good with layered guitars, you know, and, no. and other parts. And so when you do the stop and go, you need to have the breathable space to allow the drums and bass or vocals to kind of stand out a little bit because the guitar is so prominent on this. So I'm actually yeah. glad he did this. Yeah. I'm not the biggest Ruben fan based on some of the stuff he's done, but he got it right here though. No doubt about that. Yeah. But you know, oh, yeah. they didn't stick with the sound. It's really you know, only this didn't. album. They right. kind of, kind of went back to what they were doing before in a, a different little, way. But like, I, I mean, merged. the next sound was kind yeah. of a merge of the two, I thought. Yes, yeah. I would agree. Like, you yeah. know, they got Bob Rock on Sonic Temple. And it sounds you know, like a Bob Rock album. It, exactly, it does. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's like, you know, maybe they felt like they went a little too far and they, you know, kind of left a lot of their old sound behind. But I, and so, you know, for that reason, I think, you know, Sonic Temple was kind of a, it did kind of pull a little bit more of their older sound into it more to, you know, to sound more like them. I mean, not like this didn't sound like them because like I say, it was, it really, it, they, you could tell that they wanted to go in this direction because they, the way that they played on this album, it just feels like this is what they wanted to do. And they just needed the right person to kind of help them find the sound. And I think, you know, Rick Rubin did that for them. So let's keep it rolling here. We, the next song is called Bad Fun. The ride continues with this rocker. It's a thundering tune with searing guitar. The solo scorches. It's a frenetic, upbeat, rocking song. And this ends side one of the record. And I really couldn't believe how rocking this album was when I first listened to this. It's a cool opening riff leading into a quicker-paced song than we've seen so far felt it has an Elvis meets punk rock vibe, maybe like a psychobilly <laughs> kind of thing. Regardless, another banger of a track. And I'm kind of glad it breaks out of the mid-paced slog of the first five songs, kind of a mid-album wake-up call, kind of like 1959. So, I mean, like nothing like it, but just yeah. in, in <laughs> what it does. In terms of pace and, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. The, my my very first comment was the same thing. I liked the nice change of pace because at this point, I think it was needed on the album because those five songs are all, they're in the same vein. And so it was kind of nice to kind of mix things up because you don't obviously want it to be repetitive for every single song. You're like, oh, I've heard this already. So that was nice. I think the guitar work is great during the chorus. 
there's some diversity in the drumming a little bit because for this kind of music, you're not going to get a Bill Bruford or a Neil Peart like we've mentioned earlier. <laughs> or even a Biff Byford. Yes. <laughs> you're not going to get that. But you do want to have a little something that that gives it a little more backbone. To me, the 4-4 player that doesn't do anything, which is actually very reminiscent of ACDC. The drumming just doesn't do much. It's nice to get a little something different on this. And I, there's a little bit of a frenetic guitar solo, which sounds kind of cool with it. So, yeah, I'm down with it. All right, so flipping the record over to side two, we come to King Contrary Man. This is another kicking riff, a high-energy vocal delivery. It's bluesy with reckless abandon. I love the guitar tones on this album. Hello, Satan. It's me again. (laughs) What do you mean, I? (laughs) Cool tune as always, but, you know, these boys definitely been hanging down the crossroads with Robert Johnson on this one, and now they have those hellhounds on their trail. Excellent episode on Supernatural when they go to the crossroads. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn it, Dean. Why did you have to do what you did? Anyway, again, big-ass riffs. I love the stop and go on this song. They kind of fall back to the formula again a little bit, but this time it's grittier. It's a little dirtier. It's grungier, but not grunge. The sound is just dirty, and I kind of like that. It's nice. Dirty, dirty. Yeah. Again, the solo is a little loud in the mix. That's for the time. That's what was happening, you know. Again, it doesn't take away from the rest of the instruments. I'm just prefer better balance, but that's my own personal preference. That doesn't mean it's not right. But I do dig how the song is just a little grittier and dirtier. Like almost like, hey, I gotta go wash my fingernails out because they're dirty from working on my car all day. You know? It's got that little bit to it. So I think that's again not deviating. They're not changing their lane, but they're adding a little more spice to their palette, you know. So yeah. All right, so the next song is Love Removal Machine, the first single from the album. Another great riff and another energetic performance. It's got a gnarly solo. And the end of the song blasts into a more frenetic zone that feels unhinged. Speaking of the Stones, Start Me Up Called wants its riff back. That said, can't complain how it starts off. Ian starts off singing, check this one. I think he meant to say, Stole this one, (laughs) but love removal machine is how he has to say that. (laughs) But I could listen to him sing baby, baby, baby all day long. Yeah. Agree. This is a great song. And you know what's weird about this song? It doesn't open with the traditional riff they've been using for every song prior to this. It just (laughs) kicks in with the drums and just bang right off the bat. Right into the stones. Yeah, right into Tattoo You. I mean, what I always loved about this song is that when I heard it on the radio, it just, you want to turn the volume up. It's great. Their signature songs have always stood out, and they've got three, one from each of these albums, you know, Love, Electric, and Sonic Temple, that anytime I hear them, I want to crank them in the car. This is, it's cliche to say my favorite song is the biggest single off the song, but off the album, but this really is my favorite song off the album for a lot of reasons. I mean, this is their epic at four minutes and 16 seconds on the album. <laughs> I think Ian's vocals are outstanding on this. I agree. I love the baby. It just, it oozes. It's got a bluesy twinge to a hard rock song without 
being bluesy, which is kind of, yeah. I like how they thread that fine line there a little bit. Ending's great. I agree. They create this kind of frantic, fast tempo outro, which is cool. And yeah, the chorus is memorable. The guitar solo is killer. It's just a great song. It, it really is a great FM radio song because it's the right length. It's got all the ingredients and it's it packs a punch. You raise a good point. Like, I'm not a big blues guy and I really don't always go for like the stuff that's really blues soaked. You but need to get into album, the blues, my brother. Well, I mean, I like it okay, but after a while, it just kind of all kind of sounds the same or just doesn't really, I don't know. That's where we and came I, from. I guess, but I'm just not that blue. But, but you know. Not like Miles, like eh? you, like Like you say, John, this, there's blues aspects to it, but this, it's firmly entrenched in hard rock, and I feel like, it doesn't, you know, while it draws from the blues, it's just, it's more hard rock than anything else. And I think that's why I really like this as much as I do. All right. So George mentioned this earlier. The next song is Born to be Wild. I like Asbury's vocals, and this is a rocking version of this. But I have to admit, I think I would have liked to uh, hear another original song rather than this. But it is kind of a cool tune. So as I mentioned, this was my first cult song and the one that got me into the band. I remember the first time hearing them being on the school bus and someone was playing it. And I was like, that's not terrible. <laughs> Keep in mind, this was 1987 and I was in the thrash metal glory days at this point immature point in my life i was too into my metal persona to allow myself anything but thrash but this song coined the phrase heavy metal so i was like let's check this out and i was really conflicted over liking this album at the time but i liked acdc <laughs> and so on that basis <laughs> i grandfathered the men and eventually it was just normal but anyway it's a good version so my first comment on this song is no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Way to just Sorry. completely discredit my whole life. <laughs> if you guys like this version, great. No. I. First off, I mean, I really don't want to waste that much time. I have more notes probably on this song than any other song on the album. <laughs> The absolute lackluster intro, the the kind of you got another thing coming guitar then intro. This song originally recorded has one of the greatest riffs ever in the history of rock music. I mean, when as soon as it starts, you know it's Steppenwolf. Uh -huh. Not this version. This slow buildup is weak sauce as far as I'm concerned. I think his vocals... Who allowed this to be put on the album? <laughs> Seriously. Because the chorus, he oversings it. There's nothing behind it. The inflection's nothing like John Kay from Steppenwolf. Look, I don't want an actual rep replication for a cover song because that's useless as far as I'm concerned, too. I'm not a big cover fan. I like some, but yeah. most of them I don't like. So I want it to be theirs. That's without question. I want it to be theirs. However, when you change it to such a point where it's missing some of the key signatures from the original song, then it's just kind of like, why, why, why? That's just me. You guys like it? That's cool. 
Well, I don't well, like this. Like I it's said, just, I would have rather had another original tune on it. Question. Had this been a reissue that's remastered and it's a last track bonus track? I'm fine with that then. I got no mm, problem with that. Yeah. But it's inserted into the song listing. Um, so I, I just won't waste any more time. I came for the heavy metal thunder and all I got was a hard rock blunder. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, just right. me. Just right. me. Just me. All right. I respect your opinion. Just me. All right, so the next song is Outlaw. Another great riff, and it's dirty. Another great vocal delivery. It's dirty. Yes, it's dirty, dirty. And it's a quick tune under three minutes, but very good. This opening riff sounds very familiar, but it could be because I've heard this album so many times. I like the riff under the chorus, and then the heavy chords backing the solo section. That's what I like mm. about this one. Yeah, so I'm glad this song came up after the last song because I needed to get to one of their own songs next. It reminds me of Bad Fun a little bit with the um, tempo vibe. I kind of dig that. I find it interesting that this song is titled Outlaw, given that Born to be Wild precedes it. And that song was from the album Easy Rider, which was kind of like biker outlaws. And I would just would have preferred outlaw next instead of born to be wild i'm going to tie this back to our last episode i can actually hear vince neal from motley Crue singing the chorus to this song it just seems like it's it's a simple chorus for him to sing that he would butcher it of course (laughs) but it just seems like it's something he could sing it's not saying much i'm just saying i feel like i can hear him singing it but it's a good song it's again I've said this every song we all, we've all said this. It doesn't stray from the template at all. And I think that's the smart thing they do on this album, minus the cover song at this point. But, yes. Yeah. I would agree know. because they yeah. actually had like a handful of other songs that they that they could have done. Yeah, I'd rather have that. But this there is were a band. lot of B-sides from this album, Groove Company and yeah. Zap City being, mm-hmm. being a couple of them. And, you know, I really like they would have had to have re-recorded those as well because those were part of the manor sessions and they still kind of have that sound so it it wouldn't have as they were recorded it wouldn't have fit in with this sound i'm guessing if that's the case they probably would have to do some reworking to the songs as well and and they here let's be honest this is the very tail end of record labels forcing bands to put covers on their albums now maybe they wanted to put a cover on the album for all we know but let we anything from the mid 60s all the way through into the 80s there was always these bands that as they were breaking and becoming big these covers got jammed onto these albums Mm -hmm. yeah now again they may have chosen to put and the idea of the song fits them no doubt about that it just makes me wonder did it it definitely kind of fits into the you know the mood and the style of this album i agree 100 i just don't like the execution i agree and you know what what i think is funny is that that the record company probably thought this was going to be the big single off the album and yet you know there were four other singles yeah those first three songs removal and wildflower little devil you know, uh, yeah, and, all and this. probably, uh, yeah, I know Love Removal, Wildflower, and Little Devil were all, all singles from the staples, album. yeah, and they were way bigger than Born to Be Wild. Like that, that, that really, I don't recall, like, I'm sure that got some radio play, but nowhere near what the actual singles from this album got, you know. No. And let's be honest, of all covers, you know what? I'll tell you what else really irks me about that song. It doesn't have the psychedelic feel to it. And I want, I know it, it should be their feel, 
but I miss the psychedelic keys in the background a little bit, but I'm not going anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've gone on more about that song than I should. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> all right. The final song on the album is called Memphis Hip Shake. And I'll say the drums sound so good on this album. And this song is a good example. The outro guitar is excellent. Again, I love Asbury's vocals throughout this album, and this song is, you know, no different. He sounds phenomenal on this. Yeah, it's here we are again with a modern, for the time now, a modern hard rock song with a bluesy tinge to it or sprinkling of it. And I get a little bit of a hybrid of later Air Zeppelin and ACDC on this, on some of it. And it's funny, I should say that because you mentioned trying to get those sounds right. when they were in the studio. And as soon as you mentioned Zeppelin, I was like, wait a minute, I got that in my notes. Where did I put that again? I can't remember. And it's on the last <laughs> song. And I do get a little bit of that presence, physical graffiti guitar sound a little yeah. bit there. Yeah, um, I guess I could see that. Which is I think you and I are in agreement. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that's, I know Presence is a favorite album for a lot of fans, but yeah. I absolutely love that album. Oh, yeah. And, and Physical Graffiti is my favorite from them. But I think this is a great hybrid of those styles that they capitalize on, they do well with. Again, we're not venturing out of our lane. It's got that cool stop and go rhythm, the guitar soloing over the top. It's a decent song. It's got the whole bluesy song title, Memphis Hip Shake, you know, but mm -hmm. it's still their version, which is sprinkled blues, which is nice. All right. So this riff sounds more Aerosmith to me than ACDC. Mm. Oh, okay. And then it turns into doom metal. It slows <laughs> down. Not a bad album closer. I find it interesting how... So, George, I mentioned that it has a little later era Zeppelin meets ACDC vibe with a blues twinge to it. And it's just, I love how we're all getting so many different things from a song. Yeah. And yet they're all correct. They really are. Yeah. They all kind of fit in there. We're all hearing certain things. And let's be honest, you know, Aerosmith is a dirtier version of the Stones you know, that the bluesy stones part and we get a little blues on this and it fits right in with what we're saying. I like how we all got different feels to it. So, yeah. So let me wrap this up. So even though this was a huge sonic shift for the band, it didn't sound inauthentic. The band plays with gusto and seems to be reveling in the discovery of their newfound sound. They would continue in this vein on their next album, Sonic Temple, but I feel like nothing they ever did after this rocked as hard or had as ballsy of a sound. I love everything about this album, to include the art that they used on the front cover and on all the singles. To me, everything came together perfectly on this album. I saw them in 2013 when they played this album in its entirety, along with B-sides from that time like Zap City. It was pretty much a dream set list in a small venue, the Theater of Living Arts in Philadelphia. Oh, wow, you saw them at the TLA? Yeah. Wow. And they played all of this album in its entirety. Wow, man. Yeah, it was, it was, that was a great show. I bet. On the whole, I've been a fan of this album ever since I allowed myself to listen to it. <laughs> and it's definitely my favorite album from these guys. They got more popular after this album with songs like Firewoman and one of my favorites, Sweet Soul Sister. I will sing the heck out of that one in the car. But <laughs> this album is where it's at for the cult. 
Yeah, like Tiara and George, I like this album too. I'm not a super cult fan, meaning I don't have a lot of their stuff. I have the three probably most popular albums from them, meaning Love Electric and Sonic Temple. I will say, in terms of sound, this is, if you're a Maiden fan, this is peace of mind, whereas <laughs> Sonic Temple is mm. their power slave in terms of became the big stadium sound at uh, that point, even though yeah. it was still similar to this album. And this is the album that was still, we're still playing theaters kind of sound, which is cool. And it's nice that it's slightly different between the two albums. Cool album, got some great tracks on it. You know what you're getting from them and they deliver. Yep. yep. And I would also recommend that if people are interested, they should, you know, go out and listen to some of the Manor Sessions. There was a there was an EP called The Manor Sessions that was released that had the original, some of these songs that were recorded prior to Rick Rubin's involvement. And it, you can hear the evolution. You can hear the songs as they, you know, had originally written them. And then you can hear what Rick Rubin did to them on electric. And so it's pretty interesting to, to, you know, if you have an interest to hear like how these songs evolved and the impact that Rick Rubin had on this band, you can listen to that. You can see how big of a factor a producer, you know, the right producer can be, huh. you know, when you listen to the manor sessions and, and then listen to electric and, you know, originally this album was going to be called peace and, but, you know, they ended up calling it electric, you know, once they recorded it with Rick Rubin. So later on, they did release it as an entire album. They have all the original versions of the Peace album recorded. So you can find those out there if you want to hear how those changed. They were originally on the Rare Cult box set. And you can, you know, you can find, I'm sure you can find that if you dig around on the internet or YouTube or whatever, but you can really, you know, hear the difference in how that album transformed into something that sounds like it was kind of growing up from love and then something that sounds completely different and really just completely rocking once Rick Rubin got a hold of them. So that's your homework assignment. I want to hear that. All the listeners out there. From Monty Python. And now for something completely different. I'm glad they called it electric and not peace, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah I agree. It, it would be a little bit of a, a letdown title-wise, given the songs. That well, the are. songs have nothing to do with that, right? I mean, I don't know. Well, yeah, just one song. Yeah. Really. So Peace Dog, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it. they did the right thing. Yeah. Great album. I mean, I, I love it. So, it's cool. All right. It only took us a little over two hours, but we have achieved agreement. Yes. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. You consider I had the shortest album in terms of number of songs, and yet they somehow seem to dominate the time because it's them. Yeah. It's King Crimson. Nothing's easy with them. They are the king. It's still funny. All right. Well, that's another episode in the books. Thank you for your time this evening, gentlemen. Yeah. And we will do this again soon.